Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant family. So good to see all of you here. You ready for the snow? Does it really matter? All right, it's coming, right? To those of you who are joining us from home, thanks so much. Whether you're a part of this family or whether you're a guest, uh, go to covenantexperience.com, connect with us today. We're in Revelation chapter 2 uh, in one of probably my favorite thus far messages that I've put together for this overall 19-week series. I think the Lord Jesus has something very sweet, very specific to say to us today. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to that because it comes to us uh, through seven letters. We've talked about this in the introduction last week. Revelation is an unveiling of the glory of Jesus, that it occurs through prophetic utterance, but all of that is contained in a single letter that John, the beloved disciple, writes to seven churches. And we're going to see seven many letters contained within that larger letter today. And we're going to learn a lot if we are able, or at least if, if we're willing, to submit ourselves essentially to the same rubric that those seven churches did. Because letters can teach us a lot. When you're looking over somebody else's shoulder and you're reading a letter, whether it's for, to learn history or whether it's to, to gain some understanding of context, letters can be powerful motivators. And I'm hoping that's what it's going to be today. But here's the other thing about letters. They can also lead you astray if you don't understand exactly what they mean. So we want to be very careful today because about 15 years ago, I experienced this. I was doing an interim pastorate. My family and I were living in central Maryland. I was working with the Baptist Convention of Maryland, Delaware. And on the weekends, I had a little side gig where I was preaching for a church that was seeking a pastor, a lot like Pastor Chris Eads did so faithfully before I arrived here about six years ago. And so one weekend, one Saturday, I walked out to the mailbox and I, I pulled out this letter and, and it had no return address on it. I didn't know who it was from, had no idea. I, I knew it was female because, well, it was legible, right? I mean, I, I knew that. I mean, I, that's typically the way it goes, right? And so I opened this up. Now, now, just a little inside look. Normally when pastors get anonymous letters, they're not very nice. I just need to know that. This was a complete 180. I mean, it just lifted my spirits uh, it was, you know, listen, your, your preaching is powerful. I, I've been so transformed by that, and I've seen Jesus and all these different kinds of things. Mean, it, it, was, it was just telling me, and I always love to hear how somebody and, and their life has, has been changed by God's Word, and boy, if it came through me, what a privilege that is. And, and so in the middle of, of, a, of a really busy week, actually at the end of a really busy week, Saturday afternoon, I must have walked that high off the ground from the mailbox back to the house I walked into the house. Amy was doing something in the kitchen. I walked over to the counter. I laid that letter right in front of her. I said, baby, look at this. I, I don't know if I've ever gotten an anonymous letter, number one, that's been positive at all, but, but one that was this encouraging. This has absolutely made my week. You want to know 15 seconds later, that woman looked up at me and she said, who's the hooch? I said, what are you talking about? She said, I don't know who this is, but she's after you, and it should come as no surprise to you. I don't like that. <laughs> I said, you are overreacting. They, they ain't nobody after me. She barely, I haven't even been there three months. So whoever this is barely knows me. Well, that's obvious, right? Oh, she didn't say that. She probably could have, and it would have been true. So I, I said, no, there's just simply no way. Well, as it was, we just happened to have some, some dear friends of ours coming over for dinner that night. Also a ministry couple, uh, a pastor in one of our churches and his wife, and who is also a dear friend of my wife, and continues to be. And Pastor Rob and Denise sat down at our table. Denise sat down at the end of our dining room table. My wife did not say a word. She simply took this letter, opened, went over to the end of the table, laid it down right in front of our friend Denise, and Denise picked it up and read. And neither one of them read the whole thing, by the way. They read about a paragraph in, and you know what? Denise looked up, said the same thing. Who's the hooch? I'm like, y'all are outside your minds. Like, this ain't real. Like, that, there's no way that this, and, and, and so Amy responded in this way. She said, well, I don't think you're right, but I'll tell you this. Tomorrow's Sunday, you're going to preach, aren't you? I said, yeah. She said, I'm going with you. 
And she went, and she had her Bible, and she had that letter on top of that Bible, plainly in, in plain view of everybody else. And I don't know how she did it in a congregation full of people, but she flushed that woman out. I'm talking flushed her out. And the woman started. And I was shocked to hear the same kind of flowery language. And, I, and, and she told my wife and all this stuff, and he's just a really special man, and you, you know, make sure you're taking care of him. And all of a sudden, I'm like, boy, that's gutsy. I've watched this woman give birth twice. I'm afraid of her. That's gutsy. I mean gutsy. And Mrs. Rainey looked at that woman, and she said, well, there's a couple things you need to know. First of all, he puts his britches on just like every other fallen man on the planet and I ought to know because I've been married to him more than 15 years and I've been taking good enough care of him and that's none of your concern. Now, if you want to write an encouraging letter to your pastor, please do. All right, Don't let that story discourage you. I could use some encouragement from time to time just like the rest of you. Just sign your name, you know, and, and maybe have the right intent because that's what we were arguing about, right? It wasn't about the actual word. What was it? It was about the intent of the author, wasn't it? My wife and her friend, our friend, had actually, as it turns out, the correct understanding of what was really going on, and there was a necessity uh, to maybe guard against that, put a shield in between me and, and, and somebody else. But, but I didn't have that right idea, and that was the whole debate. What did the author intend to say? i tell you that story not just because it's fun, not just because in that moment, I'm actually standing in the, in the sanctuary looking at my wife going, I'm kind of attracted to you right now. I mean, it, it's a fun story, but it's also fun. It's also a story worth telling because it really relates to what we're talking about today. There are seven letters, and it matters what they are intended to communicate. What is it that Jesus intends to communicate to these churches? How is it that the literary mechanisms that John uses to speak to these churches should affect how we understand it because these letters are giving us an inside look into everything that comes next. You don't understand anything about chapter 4 forward unless you get, with all of your mind, at least the general idea of what's going on here. And because these were the first recipients of not just these letters but of Revelation, what it means to them is the same thing that it means to us. Because as I told you last week, and I will say over and over and over again throughout this series, it cannot, nothing in Revelation can mean to us what it did not mean to them. All right? What it meant to them, it must mean to us. Otherwise, we get out all kinds of kooky stuff. So these letters prior to, because some of y'all are, yeah, and you're right, there's a lot of glorious stuff coming in this letter, but you can't wait to get to it, and to you, chapters 2 and 3 are the boring part, and you need to just put the, pump the brakes just a minute, because these letters are a gift to you. They're a gift to you, they're a gift to me, they're going to help us better understand the meaning of everything that comes afterwards by helping us to specifically understand how this letter applied to them. Now, I can't cover all seven of them in detail, although if you're interested in that kind of study, we, about two years ago, we did a series here called Misdirection, and we went through all seven churches in great detail. You can contact our tech department or just call our office. We'll be glad to get you access to that series of sermons if you'd like. So today's kind of a 30,000-foot flyover, and here's what I want to do with all seven. Three things. Number one, I want us to see the common elements of each letter. Jesus is going to say different things to these different churches. He's going to even, even reveal himself in different ways to these churches. But there's a common structure that is commonplace in each letter. That's going to be really important for what we look at at the end of our time together. Number two, there are three satanic counterfeits to what it really means to be the church that rise up out of these seven letters. Now, I want us to see those plainly, and I want us to consider them. And then the last thing I want us to do with all of that, I want us to stand on that, and I want us to conceptualize an eighth letter. I want us to submit ourselves, 2022, Covenant, West Virginia, to the exact same rubric that these seven churches in the, in the first century submitted themselves to and ask this question. If Jesus were writing an eighth letter, what would he say to us? What would he say to us? And I'll, I'll open with a few thoughts of my own, but honestly, I, I want you all, especially in your small groups, I want you to consider this an open source document that you can continue to work on in those small groups because the big idea, guys, is this. Revelation is not just John's communication with heaven. It is Jesus' communication with earth. 
It's Jesus coming in and revealing himself to real-world people in real-world churches. And that means that 2,000 years later, Revelation is not less than prophecy, but it's a lot more than that. This is not just about abstract prophecy. It wasn't written to spark debates. It was written to churches in the real world. Jesus had a message for those churches, and the great news of the gospel is that Jesus still speaks. 2,000 years later, we can see it in between the lines and in the lines of everything that we see here, if we have ears to hear. If we have ears to hear. So let's start with the common elements. There are four of them. Uh, The first thing Jesus typically does in these letters is he identifies himself to each and every church, and he does that in a very unique way. So to Ephesus, for example, this was the church that was characterized by steadfastness. They were surrounded by all kinds of pagan activity, all kinds of false teaching, and they stood firm in the middle of it. Theologically, they refused to move an inch. Jesus commends that in them, but but it, it was that whole on guard disposition that they had against anything false. That, that all of us should have, but because they were sinners too, that, that same sort of on-guard nature caused them to lose the love in their heart for the people that surrounded them and from the Lord that had, had given them that truth. And so Jesus begins by revealing himself to Ephesus in this way. Look, I've got this. You don't have to control everything everybody believes. You don't have to make sure that you've got control of this world that surrounds you because these words are those of him, verse 1, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Where do we see that? In in the previous chapter. This is the vision that John saw. He was holding the seven. Those are the pastors. Well, if he's got the pastors, he's got the churches. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. You, You don't need to always be looking out there or looking underneath or pulling up rocks and looking for heresy and demons. You need to first and foremost and overwhelmingly look at me. That's where you need to look. To Smyrna, likewise. These, these are, by the way, Smyrna was a place that would eventually watch their own pastor tortured and killed and continue to face persecution and death themselves. This is what Jesus says to them. Verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know you just saw your pastor dead. I know you did. they drug him out in the parking lot and put a bullet in his head. They hung him. They used a guillotine on him. They did this. They did it. Look, you don't ultimately find yourself under a human authority. You ultimately find yourself under me, and I have defeated even death. You see how he reveals himself in exactly the way that every single church needs it? And what that means is, conversely, we just need to get ready for that. Jesus doesn't reveal himself to everyone in exactly the same way in every context. And and John would have known this because this is the same disciple that walked with him on the earth and saw the various ways in which these various sides of Jesus get get unveiled. The, The gentle, very kind, very incredibly, overwhelmingly gracious way he dealt with the woman caught in adultery. They saw his playful side when he invited the children to crawl up in his lap and probably crawl all over. I can imagine a little wrestling match right there under the tree, wherever they were gathered. They saw his edgy side when he pulled out a whip and changed the money changers out of, chased them out of the temple and turned the tables over. We, we see all these different sides of Jesus, and, and, and Jesus knows that you and I need him. He knows we need to experience him, and he also knows exactly how to reveal himself to us. He knows exactly what side of himself we need. And he gives us exactly the vision of himself that we need in the moment when we need it. All right? He doesn't just know you. He's not just going to reveal himself to you. He's going to reveal himself to you in exactly the way that he knows that you need. Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to watch and listen. Some of you need to lift your gaze so that you can see the way in which he's revealing himself to you in the midst of whatever's going on in your life right now because he identifies himself in that way to each and every one of you. And with regard to the church, he does that with each and every local church. And when he does that, he secondly commends his churches. Most of these churches get some kind of kudos for what they've done. Look at Smyrna. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know what you've been through. I know what you've seen. I know what you've experienced. You may think no one else sees you, but I do. And I'm the only one that matters. Anyway, you ever ever said that to somebody? 
Right. Listen, it might, I, I've given, maybe you're somebody's, you're somebody's superior at work and you have to remind, look, you don't, it, it's not about your coworkers, man. You're doing a good job and I want to tell you that. I want to tell you I'm pleased with you. I'm, I'm happy where maybe it's even your spouse. Look, I, I don't care what somebody else says about you. I love you. I'm here for you. I'm here. And you need that kind of, of reassurance. And, and we see that in, in Smyrna. I see you. We see it again in Thyatira. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceeded the first. I, I shared in the misdirection series that Thyatira was a blue-collar town. Uh, a lot of dyes, so a lot, of the, a lot of the clothing that royalty, for example, would wear, uh, they, the, the purple dye, all, all those mill, all those, all those factories, all that, all that existed in Thyatira. So, so these were not people that pushed pencils for a living. These were, these were people that dug ditches. These were people that, that would have in the 21st century turned wrenches. They, this is a blue collar town filled with the kind of people I grew up with. People we call salt of the earth people. I got a few of them in front of me right now. I've probably got a few watching me right now. And I, I think if Jesus would, would have written that word in the 21st century, he might have said, listen, you're surrounded by a bunch of people, an entire culture really, this whole everybody's got to go to college culture that has convinced you that you are less because there's not a degree hanging on your wall or because you don't work in an office, but rather you dig ditches for a living or because you smell a little bit at the end of the day. And I want to tell you, I love that about you. I love that about you. This is what I love. This is who I created you to be. This is where I have put you. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think we need to be different in order to be approved. But here's, here's one of the things we learn in, in this section seven times over. Jesus, brothers and sisters, doesn't just love every single local church in existence. He knows why he loves them. And he's got a very specific reason for why he loves them. And so, so you, you may, well, I don't know, maybe if we were a little different, maybe if there was more art on the walls, maybe if there was different art on the walls, maybe if we were more high energy, you know, maybe if there was lasers on the stage or something. Some of you are more formal and you're not going that direction, maybe you're going another one. Man, Pastor Joel looks so nice at Christmas Eve. I, I wish he'd, I just wish he'd tuck his shirt in a little more often. Maybe you're more, you come from a more liturgical background and you're like, well, I love covenant, love my covenant family, but I miss robes and candles and incantations. But I, I miss that. I wonder, maybe we can be more like that. Have, have you ever known of a successful radio station that played 14 different kinds of music? No. It's because each one understands they have a context they're playing to, right? right? We have a gospel that is transcendent, but it never gets communicated outside of a particular context. That's why you have four Gospels instead of one, right? And this is where God's placed us, and this is who God has made us to be. And, and so rather than, man, man, maybe if we, even pastors, can I just admit it? Sometimes we look at our people and go, I just, I wish we weren't so weird. I, I wish. Jesus does not want us to change the core of who he's created us to be. What he wants us to do is to become more like him, but he wants us to do it in a way that is uniquely us. At no point would Jesus ever call us to be anyone different than who we are at the core because every good thing that characterizes us, he's looking in a mirror. He sees that as evidence of his grace to us. And I see, by the way, for what it's worth to you, I see those evidences everywhere here. I'll get more into that later in this message. But he, he identifies himself in unique ways. He commends the churches. But now churches are full of sinners so now we see a turn here, all right? This is the third element. He calls every church to some form of repentance. He does that because he loves them. To Sardis, he says in chapter 3, verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You know what he's saying to Sardis? You're spiritually complacent. You, you have a good enough mentality, all right? You ever heard that phrase, good enough for government work? You know what that means. That's a sarcastic way of saying this stinks, but we'll deal with it, right? It's a good enough minute. Well, we don't teach heresy. That's good enough. Our people generally are good, moral, upstanding people. They pay their taxes. They don't sleep around. That's, that's good enough. We give enough. We're meeting the budget. That's good enough. We have a great reputation among other churches and among our community, and that's good enough. And Jesus counters that assumption by saying, you're not done. You, you, you have not arrived, okay? 
Any church that thinks it's arrived is in danger. In danger. All you got to do is just Google. I'm not even going to mention any names, but I'm talking 15 to 20,000 member churches that just went poof. Don't think Jesus can't go and just extinguish the whole thing overnight. He goes, and the whole thing was because you think you you think you're all that in a bag of chips. You think you've arrived. You're not done. Your works are not complete. They're not fulfilled. You have more to do. And then, of course, the most notorious call to repentance we see in this section is that of Laodicea, chapter three, verse eighteen. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's contrasting the material, temporary wealth of the city that this church is relying on with true eternal wealth. He's not saying it's a sin to be wealthy. Laodicea was the most wealthy place, okay? Churches in Malibu should have a bigger budget than us. Because those people probably got more giving capacity than all of us collectively do. That's just how it works, right? That's not sin and redemption or some comparison of right. That, that's, that's just local economy and, and what it does, okay? We have a piece of property here worth somewhere between 7 and $8 million. And if you relocate it to Southern California, it might be 30 to $40 million. That's not wrong. That's just the market. But what Jesus is doing is saying, look, don't think just because you're the one highest on the financial totem pole that you're to be favored above all the rest of them. You actually are among the worst. You're miserable, poor, blind, naked. I want you to exchange that and look for the real deal behind the veil. Everything that I'm about to reveal to you. And so that's the call to Laodicea, turn away from the former so that I can grant you the latter. We say it all the time here at Covenant. We define being a disciple of Jesus in a really simple, uncomplicated way. Just hear and obey. Just hear what the Lord is telling you. You got to stay in his word. You got to stay on your knees and then obey. Obey. And there's no obedience unless there is daily repentance. And that's an invitation. It's not a it, it is a demand, but it's an invitation. I'll get to that later. Here's the fourth element. Jesus provides specific promises to these churches. Look at what he says to the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of, out of heaven and my own new name. And that, when we talk of Philadelphia, we're talking about a church to so just kind of give you a, a 10 minute, a, a 10 second sketch here. These people were exhausted, exhausted by the toil of ministry. And they felt powerless in their city. I can't change this. I'm frustrated. And Jesus says, he, I want you to be reminded of your true identity. I know how you feel, Remember, we said that last week, didn't we? Stop asking how do I feel and start asking what do I know to be true. Because Jesus said, regardless of how you feel, here's what you are. You are a pillar in the temple. Just because you appear weak doesn't mean you are. It doesn't. And if you stay faithful, when you are gone, the people that are left behind will remember you as a strong, faithful, true people. So with every specific warning comes this call to repentance and obedience and a specific promise. There are rich rewards when you are faithful to Jesus. He identifies himself. He commends the church. He calls them specifically to repent in very specific ways. He leaves them with a promise. There's reward if you will hear and obey. Now, the, the reason for all these cor this correspondence with these churches is, is that Jesus wants them to persevere. He knows exactly what they do not yet know, what John will unveil to them from chapter 4 on, that there's some stuff coming. There's some things they need to be ready for. There are some things that they're going to be called to persevere through. And so some of those churches are doing that better than others. Some churches are better at some things than others. I don't know if you picked up on that. Some churches are, are better at 
service to the poor than others. Some people are better. Some churches are better at evangelism than others. Some, some churches are better at helping you go deeper than, than others. That doesn't mean the, the ones that are kind of lower on the totem pole don't matter or that they're not doing anything. It just means that we, we've all got room to grow, every single one of us. And what emerges out of this overall description are three counterfeits that Jesus wants all seven of those churches and us to avoid. So I want to give those to you. And the first is this. Avoid the counterfeit of being biblically knowledgeable but cold. Revelation 2.4. He says to Ephesus, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You're thick on knowledge, you're thin on love. That's what he's saying. You're thick on the written word, thin on the living incarnate word. You got full heads and completely empty hearts. Don't fall for that. Today, that takes, well, that's taken a number of forms throughout history. Today, it, it probably is, is best seen in what we would call modern fundamentalism with, with the, the capital F. When your doctrine is right, or at least you think it is, but there must be something wrong with it because the fruit of that doctrine is there is no love for neighbor. None. No love for neighbor. And the result of that is tribalism, right? It's only people like me. It's only people that think like me. Sometimes, God forbid, it's only people that look like me. You've got this sort of hyper-fundamentalist thing. It can happen in denominations. Denominations are not inherently evil. Uh, they are simply part and, and parcel and the, of the result of the 2,000-year-long conversation that the church has had with itself. And sometimes people in good faith who love Jesus come to differing conclusions and they wind up in different traditions. That doesn't make them unspiritual. It doesn't make them less Christian. And, it, you know, it amazes me some of the just raw ignorance that's out there that, well, denomination... As if you can go to your Bible directly after 2,000 years of waves of brilliance, but you're going to figure it out. All you got to do is go to the Bible. You mean the one that's written in English that you're reading? There is no way you go to your Bible absent of context. You just can't do that. So we just need to recognize that. There's a lot of nuance in that conversation. Denominations are not inherently evil. But, but here's the thing that can happen sometimes within denominational traditions. They can continue to narrow parameters because we, we're more concerned about our identity and our history than we are the Savior that has given us birth and infused energy into us. Sometimes that's an identity that seeks to curry favor with the culture. Sometimes it's an identity that thinks in the fundamentalist side we've got to always be against culture. Denominations can can be a wonderful home but they're a horrible prison but that can happen okay that can happen sometimes it happens in the political and cultural realm some of y'all still got relatives you haven't spoken to yet because you voted for different people in 2020 and you're in sin for doing that i'm just going to tell you you're in sin it is not that important that you said it's not i didn't say it wasn't important i said it's not that important Somewhere along the line, your triage has got way out of whack, and somebody convinced you that what you did in an election is now some first-order issue of orthodoxy, like somebody doesn't believe the Trinity anymore. In fact, you'd, you'd run with somebody that denied the Trinity before you'd run with somebody that voted differently than you do, which means you might be the heretic. Y'all know I love you, right? Okay. You're welcome. In its worst forms it happens inside your own soul comes out in arrogance a lack of empathy condescension a lot of people treat revelation this way by the way I, I got it all figured out you know I've had people get mad at me because I would not fight with them about this book I got it all figured out here's a clue you don't you really don't. Everybody just leads, needs to listen, listen, in its worst forms, all those charts and graphs and timelines and identified kingdoms and rulers, just it devolves into a list of enemies for you to fight, unscrupulous people that you have to watch. You're not looking at Jesus, which is the whole point of this letter. You're watching out for anybody six degrees or less separated from George Soros. That's a satanic... Satanic counterfeit. 
When you approach this book or this environment in that way, I'm not telling you not to keep your eyes open or be looking out for false teaching or false prophecy. I talked about false prophecy last week. Of course, I pointed out some of the same people that do this crap, but you know. When you approach this book in that way, you become the know-it-all who has no love for Jesus and no love for people Jesus died to save. And I'm, I'm telling you this not to cap on you or come down hard on you or even to protect those other people. I'm telling this for the good of your own soul because without that love, you're not going to have enough in the tank for what comes next. You're not going to have it. Jesus longs to give it to you, but he ain't going to until you get your head out of the, the sand. This section of the book, I'm serious, it's a warning to you and me. If you approach this prophecy with that disposition, you're, you're going to be like I was with that letter. You, you're going to be completely clueless about what it's really saying to you, and you're going to be woefully unprepared for whatever's coming Monday morning, let alone by 2030. Likely because it's going to be very different than what you think you know is going to happen. So avoid this satanic deception of being biblically knowledgeable, or at least this faux biblical knowledge, but I'm cold, all right? Always look at the fruit. If the fruit is not love, there's some heresy in there somewhere. If the fruit is not love, right? That, that's what happened at this synagogue yesterday, all right? And it, it'll be, I, I guarantee you, our culture loves a good fight. So this, all this national unity you see right now about prayer for our Jewish friends, and we need to be doing that. We'll be reaching out to our friends at Addis before too long to make sure they're okay. Is, is, well, it was because of that, because it was because of that, because it was, it was because of this, it was because of this. Here's what's really going on. Listen, Islam is not to blame for what happened yesterday. Guns are not to blame for what happened yesterday. Human evil in the heart that got out of control, that's what's to blame. That's what's to blame. Don't be biblically knowledgeable but cold. Don't be, secondly, spiritually aware but indifferent. Listen to these words to the church at Sardis. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I got, these are the people that break my heart, and the Western world is full of them. Full of them. People in churches infected to the core with spiritual apathy. I can't find a better description of this group of people than that given by theologian D.A. Carson. In his book, Basics for Believers, he said the following in trying to describe and, and give a voice to these people. I, I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I, I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel. See, when you say you love God, that God, and, and that same God that you say you love has made himself knowable, and you don't seek to know him. You say, Pastor Joel, do you love your wife? Of course I love my wife. I love my wife more than my own life. What's her birthday? I don't know. <laughs> What's her favorite color? I, don't, I got no clue. What's she working on? What'd she do yesterday? How about last week? I, I don't know. The more I confess ignorance of her, the less convinced you are of my affection, right? As you should be. We got people that just, you know, I love Jesus. Really? When's the last time you talked to him? I want to stand on the word. When's the last time you cracked it? The church should dot, dot, dot. When's the last time you darkened the doors? 
Again, I do this for your good, for your soul. Jesus is king no matter what you do. The church moves forward in, in power and triumph no matter what you do. So this isn't, this isn't about the church. This isn't about the Lord. This is about you. A whole generation of people in the midst of a God who through his word reveals his son in all of his unveiled glory and in the face of that we lull ourselves to sleep with our iPhone apps and our Netflix binging. The spirit of God through the word of God in the church of God don't forget that part was given to guide me. Was given to guide me. When we're apathetic toward what God is doing in the world we become Christians who want $3 worth of the gospel. And then when you get called out on it, what, what do you do? You go to the one part of the Bible you have read. Don't judge me. Yeah. Don't judge. I, I've been there too. I mean, come on, let's all just laugh about it. Don't judge me. Which is another sign of immaturity because what you, you're not really quoting scripture. Somebody, you're, I just want to be left alone. And if that is you, I'm telling you for the good of your own soul, you are ripe for picking by the enemy. Spiritually unaware, spiritually aware, but indifferent, knowledgeable, but cold. Here's the third thing we want to avoid. Spiritually weary and falling away. I'm going to guess that the vast majority of people in front of me right now have probably been there in the past 24 months, if you're not there right now. Listen to these words to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I'm, I'm, I'm very well aware of the realities that surround you. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who thought Balak taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you've got another church that endured and remained faithful, but, but they, they had this in common with Pergamum. He says to Philadelphia, I know that you have but little power. Now I want you to think about those two things together. You have little power and influence, and, and, or maybe you're like a lot of Christians in the 21st century, but it feels like we used to have, but we don't have it so much anymore. So we're going to go all Niccolo Machiavelli and start, and start clawing for it to try to keep it. When we get later into Revelation, what you're going to see is that kingdom you keep clawing for gets destroyed under the foot of King Jesus one day. You're aiming for the wrong thing. It's coming. Be patient. Keep coming back. That's what we see. We, we forget, I think, how desperate this situation was in Asia Minor. I, I, you're, you're in the midst of Satan's throne surrounds you, and you have little power to do anything about it. Listen, I, I get that we have challenges here. I am not asleep at the wheel. I am fully aware that there are radical people out there who despise Christianity and Christians who would love nothing better than to see the faith you and I practice outlawed under the banner of bigotry and intolerance because there's nothing quite so ironic as banning something in the name of tolerance but I digress, okay? I get all of that. I get there's a presence of that. The threat of that at this moment, I'm not saying it couldn't ever happen. Of course it could. But at this moment, it's, it's barely even present, guys. Listen, religious liberty is doing just fine. I'm on the leadership council of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I'm a little bit in the know about this, okay? It's fine. It's fine. These folks in the first century didn't have that luxury. There were no megachurch bubbles to hide in. They were constantly surrounded every single day by godless behavior. And on top of all that, they had no power to change it. And it also looked, it probably I would imagine, looked like those people were having more fun than they were. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I wonder how many of them thought in those churches, you know, if I would... Stop being faithful to Jesus and just capitulate. Not only would the persecution stop, not only would I not be marginalized anymore, but I, I could actually have some fun. I could enjoy the pleasures of Rome. That had to be quite a pull, don't you think? Quite a pull. Jesus calls them back and says, don't, don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. Some of you right here, you're, you're tired. 
understandably, your experiences over the past couple of years might have you wondering even, do I still believe? Do I still believe? Your enemy is trying to convince you by what you have experienced that you are losing. And then you look at the church on top of that and you see all of its faults. And there's a lot of them. But then you ignore all of its beauty. All right. Listen, church hurt is real. We're sympathetic toward that here. Uh, some churches can degenerate into toxic environments. We, we, we're doing everything we can around here, including using outside sources of accountability because we're all fallen to make sure that covenant is a place that doesn't become toxic like that. And secondly, a place where abusers will find no quarter. We, we, we're working on that. I know it's real. Some of you have been wounded very deeply. Some of you have been subjected to that. I get it. I, I, there are bona fide environments. I wish I could take it all away. But the enemy's tactic in that is to isolate you. Because isolated people eventually become embittered people. Yeah, It's funny. I, this coming June will mark 30 years of vocational ministry for me. I started when I was four. So, and um, when people, well, I've been wounded. Well, I mean, I want to be sympathetic to that. I really do. I, I mean, you think I haven't been wounded in 30 years? I'm going to tell you something, man. Some church people are mean as hell. I'm just going to tell you. They just are. Of course I've been wounded. You know what's kept me in the game? Aside from the Holy Spirit. Because, yeah, there's a, there's a part of me that, like, look, we got accountability structures here on campus, which means, among other things, the elders could seize my laptop tomorrow if they wanted. I got to give it over to them. I can promise you right now, they would never find pornography. They wouldn't find addiction of any kind. But they might go, boy, there were some Monday mornings where he researched truck driving schools. Why'd he do that? Right? So I'm not telling you that my lasting power is because of something in me, right? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit sustains us in this. But I'm going to tell you, why do I stay? Because sometimes my critics have been right, and that's been an opportunity for growth for me. And that'd be for, true for you too. And secondly, the testimony of God's Spirit through God's Word tells me that no matter how I feel, I'm not losing. I ain't going to lose. I'm going to win. And so are you. So are you. If you're looking in the right place. Listen, Jesus knows you're tired. He knows you're exhausted and frustrated. And when he says to you in the middle of that, repent, he's not piling more requirements on top of all that pain. That's an invitation to leave the pain. I mean, just don't, don't, like your kid that keeps doing, you know, it's the proverbial guy at the doctor going, it hurts every time I do this. It's an invitation to stop doing this. Don't do this to me. Come back to me. I love you. The call to repent is an invitation to fall, not to fall away. It's not judgment. Maybe some people watching here, we haven't seen you in a while. Come on back home. We're not, we're not going to judge you. We're not going to be condescending. Well, finally decided to show back. You will hear none of that. None of that. For the good of your own soul, come back. Come back. Now, to avoid those deceptions, you've got to look in the right place. You've got to hear what Jesus is saying to us today. And so we need to contemplate an eighth letter. That letter will help us answer five questions. And like I said, this is going to be kind of a really short run-through because this is, this is all in conclusion, all right? A really, I want you to consider an open-source document to what I'm about to say here. And in your small group environments next week, you've, you've got tools to be able to add and to edit as we continue to speak to each other. Five questions. Number one, how is Jesus revealing himself to us? 
I'm going to give you just from the standpoint of a pastor, and I don't see, I've got a unique chair where I am able to see things that you don't see, but I also realize in your relationships and your small groups and the ministries, and listen, there's all kinds of stuff that people call me up and, well, what, where's this at or how do I go? And I, I don't know. I don't know. There there are all kinds of things as well that you're aware of that I'm not. So to fully answer this question, the church has to have a conversation with itself. What's he revealing to us? Let me give you the things I'm seeing. Number one, in the wake of all of the division and chaos that has surrounded us in culture, Jesus, through his word and spirit, have constantly reminded us here that he's above all that. He's above all. Lord, divide the, divide the inheritance between me and my brother. You remember that story? That's the way some of us are reacting toward culture. My country, not theirs. Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, not interested in that. I'm interested in you loving your brother. That's what I'm interested in, primarily. The past 18 months has revealed Jesus as the great unifier if we will get under his lordship. Number two. Jesus has revealed himself as the one who has caused covenant to endure by his hand. We're awfully honest here about our past, all the great things that God has done, and all the warts, because we got them, because we are imperfect people, right? I, I just got, if you, I, I don't know what other churches do, but if you're, if you're a part of one that tries to cover all that stuff up, you probably ought to leave. Because part of repentance is realizing and just admitting who you are. And the fact of the matter is, guys, we shouldn't even be here. This church should have just went poof. And I didn't save it. You didn't save it. I have seen the hand of God in these last six years. And we are still struggling because we've been in a world where you can't help but struggle right but we're still here jesus will make you to endure i i wish i could tell you how it happened i really would i'd write a book about some magic pill and i'd retire next week i would the holy spirit of god has done this work and he continues to do it and if you're a part of that work let me tell you you're going to win you're going to win. Number three, Jesus has revealed himself to us as the one holding us up in this moment for the next chapter. And when I consider the revealed Jesus in these things, I don't want to miss that. I'm looking forward to what he has for us here. Here's a second question. What is Jesus pleased with? And this is, this, both this and the next question are difficult because I, I, you got to ask in, in preparation as a pastor, God, let them hear your voice and not mine. But I also can't help but just brag on the people that I love for a little bit. God has taken a lot of folks who have been part of this family for a long, I mean, you, you were part of this family when I was learning how to drive back when it started. And he has combined you with people who have come over the last four years, more in the last year than at any other time, which kind of amazes me. And he has created a strong core of committed people. And I'm going to tell you what I think he's pleased with. He's pleased with our commitment to serve. He's pleased with our commitment to give generously. He's pleased with our care and concern, both for each other and for the world that he died to save. Sometimes we can get distracted from that. But, but all of that is right here at the center of our identity. I'll give you one just very, very recent example of that. And this is just one. I could give you hundreds of them, but I know you want to eat lunch. When Afghanistan fell to the Taliban, this church reflexively moved to serve two very distinct groups of people that I would venture to say most organizations would not have served simultaneously. Most, most churches, in fact, depending on which way they lean, would have picked one. They would have picked one. But we simultaneously and overwhelmingly served an, a, a military veteran community that understandably felt woefully betrayed by what happened. And a refugee community who had lost everything. 
And you know what you proved to your pastor in that moment? That this really is a church that loves everybody. We don't just say it, we mean it. We don't just say it, we mean it. Everybody is someone that Jesus died to save. I cannot imagine that the Lord from his throne is not superbly pleased with that. When we see hurt, we run toward it. When we see need, we run toward it. When we see a human being, we see the image of God negatively affected in any way, we run toward it. My own heart is blown away by that. I think Jesus is pleased with us on a number of levels. Now, here's the corollary question. How is Jesus inviting us to repentance? And I would tell you a couple of things. Here's the first one. we got to go deeper. And by go deeper, I mean in our study, I mean in our relationship with him and in our relationship with other people. And so I'm just going to go ahead and say it. It is time for some of you to do more than just show up here on Sunday morning and get a meal and then leave. You, you, you need to... You need to join a small group. You need to, you need to, get, you need to go deeper, not just in the Word, but, but with God's people. Because this, what we're doing right now, is essential, but it's not enough. It's not enough. You need to, you need to go deeper with that. And so there's, there's going to be ambassadors outside in between services. Just, they're not going to be, we're not selling timeshares, okay? We're, we're not, it's not high pressure, but they're there, and, and you you need to approach one of them. You told me we got new groups that will be starting up over the summer and over the fall, and, and maybe you need to be a part of something like that because I know that you've got a group that's been in existence for 15 years, and we've got some of those around here. That's going, it's going to be hard to break into the social fabric of that. We understand that. We're, we're working on all of that, but for some of you, it's time to go deeper because I, I, I hear over and over here, and I've heard it for six years, by people that don't know. I don't really know anybody, but you know it's a big church. It's really not. It's really not a big place, okay? We have roughly 900 souls that we shepherd here. So we are less than half the size of what qualifies as a megachurch, all right? We, we're not. Let, I, I love you, but you got to stop using that as an excuse, okay? We're just too big. We're, we're just not. This place is not so big that we can't know more of each other. I think the Lord would call you to go deeper for the good of your own soul. Secondly, it's time to go personal. Okay? One thing left over from some of our older days that, that, that's just not healthy is the assumption that the answer for anything that ails us is another program. I'm just being honest. Okay? And, and, it's, and it's not just a program, an elaborate program. What do you got for this group? What do you got for that group, Jesus? I mean, that, that's, I'm not saying those are illegitimate questions. I'm going, you, you, you're asking the wrong first questions, right? We got to do that. I, I still hear stories about those big dudes coming in here with, with biceps bigger than my thigh, busting concrete blocks with their head, and then if they're still cognizant, tell you about Jesus. I don't think that's bad. That's wonderful. I, people came to Jesus through that. Wonderful. Let's rejoice in that. All right. The ladies' tees that look like a scene from, Dis, from a Disney movie. I've heard those stories. I don't think those things are wrong. But I, but I think that past sometimes can fool us into thinking that, that the answer has is, is got to be something more than what I just suggested, which is you just need to get to know each other. It's kind of interesting. All that elaborate stuff, and we still don't know each other all that well so maybe it's time to go deeper in relationship i i love you i do i love you but some of y'all could complicate a freaking two-car parade <laughs> this don't have to be that hard it really doesn't just get to know i got a group of guys it's not an official church group because well if they want to bring their bourbon i'll let them all right we we sit on my back deck we ain't doing it this month because we ain't crazy and it's cold outside. And we just, you know, two drink max because we're not going to break commandments while we talk about them. But, but I, man, my soul has been blessed by sitting on my deck with some alpha dogs and just talking about life. And sometimes it gets into deep questions. And sometimes it, it's like I, 
I don't understand how to love my wife the right way. And sometimes, I mean, you, you never know quite where it's going to go. But you know, you know, it's just really simple community. Nobody programmed it. It was a text message. Hey, come on. Okay, I'll do that. Some of you need to consider what that looks like in your life. Go deeper, go personal. The church isn't in the program business. It's in the people business. It's in the people business. We'll go to fancy programs if we don't know each other. So again, loving push toward the ancillary ministries here that already exist. Make that your focus. Let's see what God does with that. Let's, do, let's let it grow organically. The souls God is sending us here far more important than any organization. So I, it doesn't mean we're not still committed to excellence, but not everything big is best, okay? Invest in the lives of people. We, we had an opportunity to do that last night and every night this week. Our homeless neighbors are our guests this week and what probably is going to be the coldest week this winter. Might be an opportunity to talk to Sheila Athey or to Brenda Newhouse and figure out what you can do. Spend the night with some of these people. By the way, the homeless are not who you think they are. That's another sermon for another day. But we have this stigmatizing sort of way that we like to stereotype people in certain categories. And I think the homeless may be the, the people we've offended worst with that. You, I, trust me, you don't, if you've not met these people, you don't know them. What a great opportunity to spend an evening, get to know them. I think those are just a few ways he's calling us to repent. Number, number four, what is Jesus calling us to do? This may be the most open source question on the horizon. There's so many opportunities. We're still expanding our digital footprint, and our tech team is doing an amazing job with that. There are opportunities to serve through community, through Covenant Cares. There's more work to be done fighting opioid addiction because it's still killing people. Uh, 2024 is coming, so we are going to do everything we can to put a shield around the body of Christ as toxic polarization continues to be an increasing temptation because we're going to be obedient to the unity that Jesus prayed for. An entire community in North Vietnam awaits us as the world starts to open back up after two long years of waiting. There's an elementary and a middle school going in right next door over here. You'll hear more later this year about plans to, to, for the use of this campus that, that will make us the community center of this area. When you go out, whatever parking lot you parked in today, just, just take a look around. Do a little 360-degree view. I can assure you of this. What you see will not look anything like that 10 years from now. Growth is coming. It doesn't matter if you want it to come. It doesn't matter if we're proactively involved in it. We may as well get ready for it. God, through common grace, is letting us see what's about to happen. We have the opportunity to be the center of this part of the community. So what's God calling us to do? Here's the final question, and it's a simple one. Revelation 3.22 he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Is your ear to the ground? That's what I want to ask our small groups to prayerfully do together next week. Listen to the Spirit of God. See, what comes after this, starting in chapter 4, that's where we'll be next week, there is a series of curtains being pulled back. You're going to see uh, John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, go look over here, now look over here, now look over here. And, and we're going to see everything that God is doing in the world. The first thing we're going to see is the throne room. We're about to see a breathtaking, leave you speechless picture of God on his throne. You do not want to miss next week. All of his activity in the world is going to leave us amazed. But understanding that requires awareness of this. It's the reason this section comes before anything else. This isn't the boring interlude before all of the exciting stuff. This is necessary to the understanding of what comes next. And just like those seven churches, we cannot be fully aware and act rightly toward anything else that is revealed about this world until we are first aware of what God is doing in our own midst. And so as we continue to explore this unveiled glory of Jesus together, we do it while going deep and loving recklessly and standing strongly and repenting earnestly and pushing into each other and persevering because a crown is in your future. Let's pray. Let me ask you, who is Jesus? What is it about your life that he's smiling about right now that you just need to soak in for a bit?
and thank him for because that's evidence of his grace working in your life. How is he calling you to repent? And are you listening? Those questions are going to encounter a multiplicity of different stories, different backgrounds, different needs. I don't know what those are, but Jesus knows every single one. And so however he's calling you, give yourself to him today. Heavenly Father, move. Move in this place. Move in hearts and souls. Take a scalpel to the, to the joints and the marrow and ready us for what comes next. In Jesus' name, amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.